You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode three, The Artist Roundtable, part one. The Makers and Mystics roundtables are loose, unscripted conversations around a particular topic. Today's roundtable follows the season's theme of art and the urge for transcendence. Joining me for today's discussion is cultural theologian, author, and fellow podcaster, Paul Antleitner, Chicago pastor, Ted Kim, and singer-songwriter, John Mark McMillan. In our discussion, my friends and I meander our way to the subject of longing and survival and how these sometimes competing drives can lead us to the doorway of transcendence. If you're a patron of the podcast, you can enjoy an early release of part two of this conversation at patreon.com slash makers and mystics. So Ted, John Mark, Paul, welcome to the Makers and Mystics podcast today, my friends. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm so excited. I have so much respect for each of you in the fields that you're working in. Of course, John Mark is no stranger to the Makers and Mystics podcast. In fact, you were with me in Paris, France back in 2015 when I think we first started dreaming up this podcast. And you've been saying since then that you're going to build your own, but I decided to go ahead and get a jump start. <laughs> you got a big start, too. And, uh, a big jump start. <laughs> That's right. Well, John Mark's got a big announcement today. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. What is this announcement? <laughs> no, no, just you're kidding. starting yours, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been, I've been announcing that since Paris as well. And so, was that 2015? Yeah, let's not let's yeah. let's not talk it's about not. that. It was somewhere back there, somewhere back there. But Paul, I'm also a big fan of your podcast, and I'm excited to be able to introduce it to the Makers and Mystics audience today. Also, and uh, and then Ted, I think I was saying before the show, I believe you and I share about half the same bookshelf. Your your bookshelf is a little larger than mine, I think, but I'm seeking to catch up. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Well, on this season of the podcast, we are talking about art and the urge for transcendence. And that's such a broad topic, but I'm really interested what that topic means to each of you and how we might unpack that a little bit from each of your perspectives. So I don't know who wants to weigh in on that first. Well, having listened to your primer, Stephen, I don't mind going first. You're the only one that has, so you should go uh, first. I did too. I did my homework, teacher. So it's just John Mark that we give no. a hard time to, right? No, he's, oh. he's got he's got more insights on this than probably any of us. But um, I'll defer to John Mark when it comes to the art side of this. But I think you addressed it in your primer about at a fundamental level, transcendence is about the journey beyond where we are currently at. So we can we can look at this at multiple levels. I mean, you talk a little bit in the primer about some of the ways we can think about this, like scientifically, right? We can think about it from a psychological standpoint. We have this fundamental default mode that is primarily interested in survival and self-preservation. 
And in that default mode, our attention is primarily focused on mapping reality as accurately as we can so we can stay alive. And so what that often looks like is we need to have this awareness of the the finer details of reality around us. So that if we're walking through a forest someplace and we see something just even ever so slightly out of the corner of our eye slither in the leaves, we have to be on alert for that, right? So in many ways, we're primarily focused on these sorts of interests that are into our own self-preservation, which isn't bad. Like we need to stay alive. That's a good thing. But transcendence is, in in one sense, a, a way of altering that normative framework, right? So we move beyond those concerns of self-preservation, and we move into states of self-transcendence. So it's transcending that normative framing, which is primarily around our ego, primarily around self-preservation. And there's some different triggers that can produce in us a uh, a greater awareness or a desire to go from mapped territory into unmapped territory. And you have things like awe in nature. So Jonathan Haidt talks about this in The Righteous Mind, right? And many people experience this, even people that aren't aren't religious. You know, I was talking just recently to, to Strawn Coleman. I think some of you guys, probably all of you guys know Strawn. And Strawn was telling me about his maybe earliest formative experience of experiencing the presence of God. And for him, that was deeply attached to an experience of being out in nature and being overwhelmed with the sense that he was one part in something much, much bigger. And that awareness is really difficult to keep all day long. In fact, it's probably impossible because we have to be so focused on surviving. You know, we, we can't be walking across a busy road and be gazing out at the clouds and the stars and then get hit by a bus. You know, so there's something too. there's a difficulty in actually maintaining that sense of awe, you know, so you've got awe, you have, you know, height calls, there's another thing that height calls like the hive switch, you know, which is when we get together in a group of people, and all of a sudden, we become aware of purposes that transcend our own survival. And the group makes us aware of maybe a cause that's bigger than ourselves, Right. And that gives us a sense of transcendence of moving beyond that that frame. You talked about, Stephen, uh, the flow state, right? And you pronounced the author, and I've never once pronounced his name right. Can you get it again (laughs) on the fly? Brother, I'm here in the South. I don't even know that I pronounced his name right, but I did my best. I'm not even going to (laughs) try. Mahaley, just Mahaley. He just did it with confidence. There you go. That was it. You know, so the, the flow state is one of the, the, the channels into maybe altering our framework. So the flow state is a state in which we are kind of hovering in between a task that produces in us too much stress and you can't enter the flow state. If you're in an experience that comes to you as too easy, you can't enter the flow state. So you need to be in between those channels. And that flow state, we experience that like when we're doing creative endeavors of all sorts of kinds. And this is maybe where it'd be good for me to stop talking and, you know, passing it over to you guys that do a lot more creating, Stephen and John Mark. But it can be in art, you know, music, you know, you can do it in writing. You know, Ted, I'm sure you probably feel experiences of entering this flow state when you're prepping for a sermon or giving a talk. And sometimes it's not there, right? Sometimes it's like really hard work. And so... The important part, I think, is that all of these are, I'd say they are 
they are doxologically neutral, meaning like you can enter the flow state and have it actually be directed towards some purpose that's actually nefarious. This happens all the time with the hive switch, Jonathan Haidt's hive switch. I'm telling you right now, if you lived in Nazi Germany and you went to a rally for Hitler and you experienced that crowd and everybody unified together, those people experienced a state of transcendence. Now, the key difference is whether or not that state is actually moving us towards the good or not. And I think that's where we get into maybe the realm of theology and ethics, but maybe I'll stop and like pass the ball to somebody else because I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, talking about the flow state, how, how that might, might connect to specifically the arts um, and maybe even to the hive switch, how that connects to the arts and like doing art in community. So I have some thoughts just sort of piggybacking on what you're saying about survival is I, I tend to oversimplify things a little bit, but it's an interesting way to look at the world, maybe from a um, just as a practice, right? Is that you can kind of look at the world and put things in one of two categories, right? There are things that help me survive. And then there are things that make survival seem like a good idea. And I think that in, in, the, in, our, in the world we live in, it's very easy to forget about category number two. And I, I had times when I was a worship leader, and I'd lead people in worship in church, and then I've had times when I've played music out in the clubs, and and then I've had times when I did more worship in church, and then times when I didn't do that for a long time. And when you're on the outside of that, you remember asking myself, why why does like worship leading matter? Like why like if I was going to have a serious conversation about worship leading with someone who's not a believer, what would I tell them about what I do? And for the longest time, I was like, I don't really know what I would say. But recently, it's become very obvious. I tend to believe that the human machine requires something greater than itself to delight in, in order to be in a healthy posture towards life. And what can happen, I think, is that when we lose that thing beyond us, when we lose that connection, we will either slip into despair we replace it with a search for pleasure or we find something else to give ourselves to which could be good or bad, you know, better or worse or something. But we tend to need just to even be healthy people. So sort of category two ends up feeding into category one, you know. And so I remember when people talk about art like and music and when people are hungry in the world, why make art and music? when people are starving in the world. And this isn't to say that art and music is, I'm definitely not saying it's more important because when you're not surviving, my dad always says, rule number one is survive, right? And so if you don't, if you're not surviving, then what, then you don't have the opportunity to experience those things. But the goal is to survive in order to experience those things that are greater than survival or transcend survival, right? I can't remember who was saying. Is it John Adams? Yes, I think it was I think it was the special. It's like HBO or something, right? And I believe I remember him being in France and the French were drinking and eating and having a good time. And they're like, Why don't you do this? He's like, he's like, Because I need to do what I'm doing so that my kids can do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the end, like the goal is that there the goal is not just to survive. The goal is that there has to be something worth surviving for. And if we lose that, we slip into despair, or we look for it in pleasure, or we we find it in something 
negative. But it's very, very easy when we're in survival to want to carry survival beyond itself. And I think you see this. Um, this is pretty common when someone grows up really hard. They develop this survival mentality. And a lot of times when they're grown up, when they're doing fine, when they're doing well, they still have this survival instinct about them. And they still um, oftentimes will fight you over things that don't matter because in their mind, they never stop surviving. You know, and there's an anxiety that comes with that. And it, it, it's different in different people. I find it in myself with success. I've done some really like my younger self would look at me now and be like, you are successful. But I wake up some mornings and I'm like, why don't I have 400,000 followers on Instagram? I've had 127 for like the past <laughs> two years. What's the deal? And, and, I, and I catch myself and I'm like, that's a dumb thing to complain about. Everyone likes to see progress, right? But I catch myself like, why do I need more, right? Why do I need it? Other than the fact that, it's fun, right? But but I realized there's a survival thing in me. Something a long time ago told me that in order to make it, you're going to have to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And a lot of times we keep doing that and, and we get on that track, right? Where like I continually have to be more and more successful. And the other day I was like, why do I have to be? Why do I have to be, right? And so for me, there's a transcendence when you move from survival alone into the thing or a thing that makes survival a thing worth doing. Otherwise, I spend my whole life just trying to make it, just hustling, just doing the thing, right? Working every angle. And you sort of wake up one day and you're like, I, I, and this happened to me, actually. I did some incredible tours and I went to some incredible places and I was talking to someone about it and I realized, like, I didn't experience any of that. I didn't enjoy it. I was doing, I was living my dream, you know, and things really blew up for me in my late twenties, um, early thirties. Like I was living my dream and I didn't experience any of it because I was so focused on making it, on making it happen. And I was sad for a minute. I looked back, I was like, I was with some of my best friends. We were playing cool venues. We were traveling the world, eating cool food, meeting cool people. And I didn't enjoy it any of it for a season because I was so focused on making it happen. And I, w I wished I could have gone back and, and actually enjoyed and experienced some of those things. And so that's a big thing for me now, the people I travel with. And we, I'm like, I always want to enjoy something. You don't always have time to go see all the sites, but every, you meet somebody, you see something, you taste something. But I wonder if there's, and, and we're talking about art and transcendence, like I wonder if there is, this thing in us from the time when we're, you know, maybe since we're born, there's this inside part of us that wants to be outside. It wants to be known by other people. It wants to wear clothes and wants to make a ruckus and wants to be significant. Right. And I was reading Dallas Willard and he was talking about significance and I love Dallas Willard. And he was saying the desire for significance is not the same as being egocentric because every person desires to be significant and it's a healthy desire because God put you in the world. You were put into the universe. Why would you exist if you had no significance whatsoever? And so there's a desire for significance. And I think maybe what I'm talking about with survival is you get into the ego where the, the ego is me 
trying to make things happen, right? But then sort of the backlash is like, well, maybe there's no significance in what I'm doing, right? And maybe the healthy balance is that. No, I'm working towards something, but it's not just so that I can survive, not so that I can just make money, not so I can just impress people, but like there's a thing worth doing that's beyond that. Something you said stood out to me about how you couldn't actually see what was going on right underneath your nose in the tour, all the the details. And I think one of the things, because when I talk to people a lot about transcendence and this sort of frame altering from the default mode of self-preservation into seeing yourself as connected to something of significance, a purpose and a meaning, oftentimes, especially artists can tend to think about the grandiose right? So there's, I sometimes talk about this as the telescope effect and the microscope effect. So you have like this telescope spirituality, which is acts of like contemplation, you know, the awe in nature, the, 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 like the two hour long worship, you know, extravaganza that you guys have all had, right? Where it's like, it feels like your face is melting, like, you know, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, <laughs> there's those sorts of experiences. But for me, John Mark Cornell, one of the things I noticed in my own life was being so wired for those experiences. And they were really, really good. I hadn't developed the sort of microscope spirituality, which was to see an entire world of God's goodness going on right underneath my nose in the minutiae and in the little details. And I do think there's something, maybe you wouldn't call this transcendence, maybe Ted's got a better word for it. But there is something about the frame disruption, taking us up in scale. So it's like upscaling, which would be contemplation. And then typically what people might refer to is like the practice of meditation would be like downscaling to focus on the details of those like little moments on your tour. And I'm so struck by that. Not that I've had like a a world tour, <laughs> you know, to reflect on. But when I think about the moments in my life where I was totally unattentive to the blessings of these little mundane moments with my own children, like doing the silly things, like playing in the backyard in the summertime, and my mind was stuck on like career and vocation and something huge and something big. I needed a frame disruption in that moment too, to be able to be attentive to that. So maybe that, I don't know if we could call that transcendence or not. I mean, a lot of people would say it's like attention downscaling. Maybe Ted's got a better word for it, but I still think it it's a similar principle about moving out of those sort of egoic self-preservation mode and something disrupts our frame to see the world differently. And it could be on the upscale side and it could be on the downscale side. Which makes me kind of wonder about like uh I don't know if this is the, the right way to put it. It's transcendence, but I do wonder about ordinary moments being freighted or being thick and meaningful. Because um, it does feel like, at least, kind of in the story that we're in, um, there's possibility in every moment um, that we just don't awake to uh, sometimes when we're young, which is not to say that be old to experience that. Uh, but I, I do think that um, what one thing that wisdom teaches us is maybe that we flip the art and survival thing a little bit. Art is like optional when you're thinking about surviving. Um, but kind of one of the things that I wonder about is just as a pastor, uh, I wonder if art is necessary for survival. Yes. So you flip the two things around. Because here's one thing that I noticed 
one thing that I notice is most of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is to try to give people some kind of, I don't know, something to do or something to think about or something to dream about in the space between what is and what will be. So this is still a giant space here. And I think that most of what I do is try to say, let's fill that space with amazement and awe and wonder and not with despair. And we can do that because of our faith. We can do that because of the fact that transcendence actually isn't like a, a, a concept. It's a person and the person is benevolent. The person loves us. And the person actually wants to break into our ordinary existence and reveal that love to us every moment, you know? And so part of my job is to say, like, look up and not look there or look here or look, I mean, or wherever, and fill that space with amazement and hope rather than despair, or like to use your word evasion. And to me, I think that's where art becomes necessary for survival, because art, I believe, helps us to do that. Art helps us to be amazed. Art helps us to take ordinary moments and realize uh, why there's something actually more happening here, which is why like, I love going to the Art Institute of Chicago because I can go to look at Edward Hopper, Nighthawks, and I can go look at American Gothic, um, and I can look at very ordinary scenes that have weight underneath them. And somehow I can begin to think, well, maybe my life does too. So I love the idea that maybe we're in a cultural moment right now where we're flipping uh, this whole idea of, well, we'll get to art after we survive. And we need the art to survive, which is how I mm -hmm. think people pre-Reformation thought about things. You know, I just think they thought, man, in order to live, you need to be astonished. Yes. So that's why we uh, we look at things that we have so much scientific explanation for and maybe like maybe say, what's the thing beyond the thing, which I think Paul is so good at doing. And then we actually say, no, the thing that actually happened when I was at John Mark's show or when I was listening to Stephen talk, the thing that was happening that sort of was starting to wake up in me, um, that's actually really important. It's not optional. It's really important. And so maybe the thing that I most want to say is, is art is like one of the most practical things. Taking in art, being astonished, being in awe is one of the most practical things that I give our congregation to do on a week-to-week -week basis. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is that everybody wants to do it. Mm -hmm. They're like, I'm in. You mean you want me to go outside and just like enjoy nature? Totally, I'm in. You know, you want me to do... You want me to go to the Art Institute? You want me to read Christian Wyman? You want me to read poetry? You want me to do all? I'm totally into it, which makes me actually so hopeful. Mm. It makes me really believe in the thing you're doing, Stephen. It's not just a thing for artists. It's a thing for everyday people. Yes. And that's the way. One way to think about flow or the narrative of flow for me is uh, moments punctuated by the transcendent God breaking in through his spirit. And so when you talk about the, those moments being doxological, doxologically neutral, I think it's a good way of putting it because they can move us in one direction or another. I mean, the funny thing about moving in one direction or another, it's a lot like taking an art. You receive it, you welcome it. You don't make it happen, you know, to a certain degree, unless you're a creator, you know? Yeah. You know, one thing that I wrote about in the book Naming the Animals 
was I talked about that verse in Genesis where it says the trees of the garden were made both for beauty and for food. And that has always stood out to me as a foundational aspect of what it means to be human. And the fact that these trees were created not only to produce food, but to be beautiful. And so what that has always spoken to me is that as food is to the body, beauty is to the heart or to the soul or to the inner life, you know? And I think that you're right. There's something, I'm just jumping out of my skin to hear you say that that maybe art is not optional, that it is part of survival, that it's it's not just a tag on, but that it's essential to what it means to be human. And, you know, Paul, what you were saying earlier, it just made me think that it really is a uniquely human aspect to see and interpret the world in symbols and in metaphors. You know, that's that's something that goes beyond hunting and gathering. You know, it, it, to see the world in symbol and metaphor is on one level a uniquely human thing. And I think sometimes we conclude that something is meaningless due to our own blindness or insensitivity to recognize the miracle in the midst of the ordinary. And that's something that I'm really interested in is, is learning how to live in such a way that I'm attuned to see the miracle in the midst of the ordinary or to see the transcendent in the moments that are just right here in front of us. And it was interesting, John Mark, when you were talking about being on tour and you're in the middle of incredible experiences, but you missed it on some level. And I think we all do that. It's it's only in hindsight that we see the full capacity of some of these moments. But what if we could live in such a way that we were aware of that miracle in every moment? And that could get into some other discussions as well. It's, it's you know, for me, I don't think transcendence is this guru on top of the mountain, dosed up on mushrooms, kind of aloofness to the everyday life. But I think that true transcendence requires us to be grounded in the moment so that we can move beyond without losing ourselves, if that makes sense. You know, I wonder about this, John Mark. Do you think you missed it? Do I think I missed it? Yeah. I don't. So maybe there's a moment when I thought I missed it, but as I've gotten even older, I realized that that was what I did to learn. You know, like that was the that was the bad. I didn't, and I didn't to, I didn't totally miss it. No, hmm. I had some really great times. Here's why I asked the question. There are two things that I wonder about. The one thing that I wonder about is like what you're talking about, Stephen, learning how to recognize those freighted moments of transcendence in the ordinary or, or beauty, how beauty breaks into like kind of ordinary moments. Yes. Um, it still produces longing. And I do think that like even in Garden Genesis 2, which is maybe one of the most important chapters in all the Bible that people don't actually really read that much. I wonder if part of God's gift to us was longing. Oh, yes. And part of the reason why the tree was beautiful was it was supposed to produce in us something that longed for something more, which is kind of like, I mean, you mentioned Elaine Scary and like in in the primer, and Elaine Scary's whole point is that beauty are just that they have reference points beyond themselves, right? Which is why beauty is, I would argue not just good to have, but essential and necessary in life or death because desire is good. Longing is good. And so part of what I wonder about for you, John Mark, is if one way to look at kind of like the time 
when you were touring and you were having these wonderful things happen was not necessarily that you missed it, but almost like, um, wow, there was more there than what I was actually experiencing. And I, th I wonder if that's, if that's how it should actually be, you know, like if all those moments should feel somehow like really pregnant and full, but at the same time, still have the edge of hunger to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just remember thinking like, I, I was, there's so much of it that I don't remember because I was so focused and my band guys will remind me of things like people we met and things we did. Like we met like famous people and we did, we went places that like are on movies and in TV shows we ate food and I don't remember it. And I wasn't on drugs or drinking. <laughs> like I, I literally, I don't remember it because I was so focused on getting to the next place. But I had this thought, and this is a total, totally simple idea, but when I was a kid, my dad taught me when I was playing baseball that you don't hit the ball, you swing through the ball. So if you hit the ball, it'll go down the field, but if you swing through the ball, it'll go over the fence. Because if your aim is just here, it's just what's in front of you, you don't push yourself or allow yourself to flow the way it needs to, to have an optimum, um, make optimum contact with the ball. Something about swinging through. And, and there's something about swinging through life, right? It's not just trying to make it, not just trying to live and survive, but like posturing yourself towards something that's way beyond just surviving. It does something when you live beyond, you also get what's in front of you. And maybe that's what you're saying, Ted, a little bit. When you live beyond, you also get what's in front of you. I was thinking about transcendence and who would I, who who was transcendent? Well, Miles Davis was transcendent. And he was transcendent because he played jazz, but he appeals to people who don't listen to jazz. But he didn't do that by not playing jazz. He was transcendent because, so he got all the jazz people, and then he spilled over. And then he got all the non-jazz people too. So he got jazz <laughs> and he got, you know, now he's like the theme music for NPR. And so millions of people still hear that record every single day. And that's transcendent, right? It's like you spill over. It's not like choosing one thing or the other. It's like, I guess the beauty and the longing is maybe that thing that's beyond us that when we posture ourselves towards that, it's not like, it's not like the bourgeoisie, you know, where we're eating cake while people are starving. It's like, no, you get both. It's not like diving into pleasure and forgetting about reality. It's like, I've got a dream. I've got a connection. I've delighted in something that's so far beyond me that I get here and I get there. And if I don't get there, I get here even better than if I had, did not have that thing that I was aiming for that's beyond. I'd like to speak to something that came up with both of you guys were sharing that I think is really important to artists. It's really important to anybody, but especially those that have that bent towards creativity that are maybe really high in openness and trait openness is I've found many of us wrestle with a fleeting sense of satisfaction, not only in our accomplishments, but in those, those moments of beauty and there can be some really hard like downswings coming off of those moments of transcendence. 
maybe you've, maybe you experienced that on a tour, John Mark, or, you know, Steven, I know you, in your years of making music, I'm sure you've probably experienced that. I don't want to speak in your behalf, Ted, but I, I, I know preachers over the years who had what they considered like incredible worship services. The sermon was just absolutely fire. <laughs> and then the next day they felt this sense of emptiness after it. And I, I want to speak to something about this because I, I, I think I think it's maybe been framed in a way, in a lot of Christian contexts, that's actually unhelpful and it actually fills people with shame where it doesn't need to be shame. This might be controversial and you guys can correct me and listeners can complain to Steven afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I don't think the Christian message is that... You come to know Jesus in one singular moment and find permanent satisfaction the rest of your life. I, I actually don't think that's what the narrative of Scripture is pointing us to. There is nothing wrong in that sense of being, I'm never satisfied. And this gets at the heart of what we're talking about with transcendence because Wolfhart Panningberg called it, there's something in humans that he described as a sense of infinite obligation, right? And I actually think this is by design. And if we can frame it well, we can, I think, free ourselves from a lot of shame when we come out of those moments of intense beauty or being overwhelmed by awe. And then the next moment we feel that emptiness. And that's because it is by design. Each of these moments are intended to be signposts. They are icons that are intended to lead us further in an act of infinite upward movement into the very ground of being, which is God, who as the, you know, in the Eastern tradition would say, many of the theologians, the Maximus confessor would talk about how God is beyond being itself. Mm -hmm. you know, there's like, we are beyond the scope of language here. And so what we are invited into is a perpetual journey. So there's a reason why those dopamine hits wear off and our serotonergic system needs another challenge. We need to be, keep moving is because we are actually invited not into this static relationship with a God who is finite, who is like the super thing in the arena of other things, but that he is transcending all those categorizations. And so every time we get a glimpse into the beauty of God, there is more to be explored. And so instead of shame afterwards, where I go, why am I not fully satisfied? It's like, because there's more to be explored. We can't map it all. You know, uh, the, 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 the theologian Stanley Grentz, I, I want to read this quote from him, if you guys don't mind. And this comes from, and Grentz has passed away. He was a Baptist theologian and a great systematic theology book. It's standard in a lot of like seminaries. It's theology for the for the community of God. And, and Grentz writes this, our adaptability gives us an evolutionary edge over many other creatures. We are not bound to a particular niche or habitat. We have the ability to perpetually transform our environment to suit our needs. Because of this transcending capability, humans are never completely fulfilled by any one achievement or by any one transformation of the world we author. Rather, we are continually on the move to something yet undefined. That is to say, humans are never completely satisfied with the present. 
We are always seeking the new, the future, the not yet. Side note, that's what Ted's talking about, this tension, right? <laughs> the not yet, which surpasses the present. We are continually shaping and reshaping our environment in an unfulfilled attempt to create a home for ourselves. <laughs> we are we sense what Arnold Gellin calls an infinite obligation. Grants goes on to write this. Because we have no niche in the biological framework, we can find no ultimate fulfillment in any one world or environment we create for ourselves. This human incapability to be fulfilled by any structure of the world in turn drives us beyond the finitude of our experience in a never-ending quest for fulfillment. We are therefore dependent creatures, but our dependency is greater than the finite world can ever satisfy, end quote. So here's the real tension. The pursuit of transcendence can be a holy pursuit of theosis or sanctification and, you know, for Protestants and those in the West. But in the East, they called it theosis because we were on this trajectory. We are called into greater union with God. The downside of that sense of infinite obligation, here's the dark side to it, is greed lust, envy. Yeah. It's the constant consumption yeah. and saying this moment in front of me is the thing that will fulfill me instead of seeing it as a good, which is a signpost to greater good. So when I take that moment and I am in, you know, John Mark's on tour and he's like, this is it. Like this, this one show we had was the best experience. It will never get any better than this. That is actually the depressing thing that we want to run away from. You know, there actually is more for John Mark. And he's going to have, not to prophesy here, but he's going to have many more incredible transformative tours in his life and cosmic hymns that he's going to write for the church that are going to be far better than anything he's ever written in the past. And if he stayed with like, you know, how he loves. And it's like, I'm good with that. Instead of going, no, like there's actually more on this journey. I think he misses out on a significant part of his purpose for being. And I think artists do this as well. When they get caught up in cycles of shame, when they feel like, what is wrong with me? Why am I not satisfied with God? It's like, no, dude, you are. God is just not finite. Hope that, hopefully that's mm -hmm. some measure of encouragement. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Go ahead. Well, no, I just wanted to say, Paul, I um, I actually think that what you're talking about, you're not going to, nobody's going to throw, nobody's going to throw stones at you for it, because I think it's like in black and white in the scriptures, you know, um, and part of what you're saying is there's a longing for more. You talk about theosis and sanctification, and you talked about some of that. I mean, like we're talking actually about also the place that we're going to. We're talking about, we're going back to a garden. You know, Genesis 2, naming the animals, your books even. It's not just about the past, it's about the future. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's in the Bible. I mean, it's like they didn't receive the things they were promised. They only saw them at a distance. Mm -hmm. And they, and because they saw them at a distance, they, they had to admit to one another, we're somehow strangers here. That's in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the transcendent thing is about union with God, but it's about union with God located in a place. Um, and that place is Genesis 2, but just with a lot more people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I think everything that you're saying 
all somehow that should become part of the church in America's formation. Mm. It would solve a lot of issues, actually. I think maybe. That's so good. I want to make a comment here on what you're saying. It's so beautiful and it hits at so much of the heart of even why I'm interested in discussing this subject. But we're talking about seeing longing as a gift, that longing itself is a gift to be treasured, you know? And somehow longing exists between desire and fulfillment, but yet at the same time, Longing itself is that gift. And, you know, it's interesting, this urge for something more, this this longing for something else, this intimation that there's just something that we're not fully embracing or not fully seeing, that's what I find to be so pronounced within the artistic temperament. And that's what I find to be part of the, the gift and the offering of the artist is to chase after that beauty or chase after that wonder to chase after that awe and to somehow contain in a moment, whether it's through a song or through a communal gathering or through a visual art or, or poem, whatever it is, to somehow go into that transcendent realm of our own longing and then convey that back to the community. And I think that's why I see such a correlation between the maker and the mystic. It's like at the core of it, we're all experiencing and expressing the same things, even if it comes out in different ways. But I think that one of the downsides of this and what has happened in my own life, and I think in so many lives, is that when the longing turns to frustration, you know, or when that longing is is not met and it and it becomes this frustration. I mean, frustration could be an incredible creative gift, just like boredom can be a creative gift or distraction can be a creative gift. Those things can also be deterrents as well. But what I've seen happen is that we end up turning to these lesser alternatives, these substitutes for true transcendence. We whether it's pleasure or through drug use or you know, false sense of transcendence, whatever it is, distraction, escapism is the way that I put it, you know. I think that's why it's important for those that see a similar pathway from the with the maker and the mystic to begin leading the way in some of this, to show that there are healthy satisfactions to these urges within us. And I think the arts play a, a tremendous role in that, as well as those champions for the spiritual you know, I, I, I hate saying experience. When I say experience, it just seems like it cheapens what I'm saying. I don't, I don't mean like a fleeting. I, I think I like the word encounter much better than experience here, but I think you get what I'm saying. Or participation. Participation is wonderful, yes. I was struck by what you're saying about the pursuit of pleasure as one of the counterfeits to our sense of longing that we have and that we will actually get fulfillment. And I was, I was thinking about the Epicureans and the Epicurean school of thought, that ancient Greek philosophy was essentially that the gods, though they might exist, don't care about us at all. So they're like functionally irrelevant. So what we have is really the material world. What we have, all we have is imminence. And so if all we have is imminence, then for the Epicureans, the chief uh, the chief aim of man's life should be just the accumulation of pleasure. 
And do you see that? That's probably also been like a temptation for the artist, especially in the secular age. You know, N.T. Wright has argued that we're kind of living again in another Epicurean framework in, in the secular age where we have been told that all we have is imminence, that all we have is the material. And so I wonder, too, about artists that also struggle with, you know, the, the pursuits of pleasure and addiction as the sort of counterfeit to the proper aim for our longings. I know uh, Viktor Frankl said when a person has lost meaning, they'll distract themselves with pleasure. But I think we want meaning. And for me, meaning comes from having a healthy connection to the, to the beyond, a healthy longing, right? And maybe it's, uh, I don't know, I think everything beautiful comes with an invitation. Everything beautiful comes with an invitation, and, and maybe the artist sometimes, you get to a point where you feel like, I cannot answer that invitation, or I can no longer answer that invitation. And then you want to distract yourself because you feel like you've given so much of your life to a specific kind of beauty and you don't know what to do. Because artists by nature, um, we, we do things over and over, right? You know, like if you're a guitar player, and you're all, all three of you play guitar, and so, but you know how you do the same thing over and over and over, develop a muscle memory, and if you get to a point where you're like, I can't, I can no longer pursue beauty through this, if you don't find another outlet, there's a loss of meaning there. And uh, there's a friend of mine has been recently talking to me about this concept of the second mountain. How many people peaked early? And they have this loss of meaning, and then they find something totally different to do, and they find another mountain at the at the in the second half of their life, and maybe that's it. It's it's easy to, I mean, for me, you, you get so focused when you're making stuff. You get so focused, and you do it well for a while, and then you're like, how do I, how do how do I do anything else? It's daunting. You know that there's just a little thread that I keep hearing from each one of you. Uh, that I was like some questions about. Um, and that's just kind of how beauty doesn't obviate or nullify difficulty or hard things or, or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and just going back to like the Genesis two thing and actually, or even being a musician, you know, that like hard work actually um, repays the effort. And I just wonder a little bit about we were having John Mark and I, we were having this conversation about why did they build the Death Star with the, a switch you know like <laughs> what were they thinking actually and so the fan you know there's like a lot of fan theories out there about why but we started talking about like kind of the nature of longing and desire how that always has sort of an edge to it and i just we just kind of started wondering about like the garden um and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and started wondering if that wasn't prohibition but that was necessary because there's something about longing and desire that that costs us, you know? Yes. And whether or not we can understand that or explain it, I don't know that we can, but I do know that uh, the artists and the musicians I know that have done it for a long time, they know the cost in their marrow and yet they're still captivated. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guests, and for information on how you can join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. 
Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an early release of part two of this roundtable at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.